0: Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Uh, good, morning. good morning. All right. Hey, it is so great uh, to be with you this morning. There, there are three places. If you could open up the, your copy of God's Word, uh, the first would be Genesis chapter four. The second would be Philippians four, and then uh, and then Proverbs twenty three. We're going to hit all those spots and still get out of here on time. I promise. Uh, so uh, several years ago, and by several I mean uh, many years ago, we were celebrating Christmas, and, and you don't know much about my family, but what's important to know for this particular moment is that we had four kids under the age of two. I know. Thank you. We made it through, uh, which was great. We now have a 13 and, you know, almost 12-year-olds uh, in February. But we had our oldest, and then about 19 months into it-ish, we had uh, a set of spontaneous twins. Like, not on the plan, not on the radar, to even have another baby. And God was like, here you go, two more. And so uh, and so, what's fun about that is that with having kids so early or so... Uh, close together, we just blow through stages. I mean, we blow through the walking. We blow through the toddler years. We're, we're, thank the Lord we're going to blow through the middle school years. Uh, so many things. But what was interesting is that around Christmas time, especially when the kids were younger, we just bought three things for them for Christmas. One for Brooke, one for Hudson, one for Hallie. And it was almost like everyone experienced uh, a very similar Christmas time, uh, especially around uh, stockings and other things. And so as we started uh, celebrating Christmas this one year, uh, Brooke and Hudson and Holly, they walk into the room where all the gifts are set up. And they start taking off the stockings. They start opening all the gifts. And I don't know how you open gifts, but we're like very structured. Okay, you get to go. Okay, everyone see what Brooke got? Okay, now you get to go, Hallie. Okay, everyone see what Hallie got, and then me. And then, you know, Dad always runs out of gifts first. That's how it goes. But here we are surrounded by all of these gifts, surrounded by all of these things. I mean, we have just spent an hour or so opening up presents because we're so structured, and then we took a break in the middle, all these things. And then at the end, Brooke comes up to me and she says, Dad, I didn't get a watch, And I look at Lindsay and I'm like, we bought three watches, right? And she's like, yeah. And so I go and I'm like looking all around and I reach into her stocking. And at the very bottom, it was like Santa's helpers, like just got it all the way up into the nook and crannies that you had to like really reach in there and pull it out, right? But what was fascinating to me in that moment is that Brooke is surrounded by all of these gifts, and she's like, Dad, where's my three to five dollar trinket that's in the watch? Isn't that interesting? Like, surrounded by all these things that are way more valuable, way more expensive, have more worth than that little watch. And she sees her brother Hudson and his her sister Hallie looking at this watch, and she's like, Where's mine? Like, Dad, do you not love me? Where's my watch? The same thing happened a couple of Christmases ago or several Christmases ago with an iPod Touch. So like I said, we buy the same gifts for our kids uh, early on in their life. And so GameStop was having a sale. Like the more you used products you bought, the better deal you had. And so me and a friend, we said, hey, we want four iPod Touches. And so we negotiated a good deal for all those things. And so we get these iPod Touches and we wrap them all up. Uh, Brooke has a box that looks the same as Hallie, which has the box that looks the same as Hudson. And so Brooke opens up her iPod or Hallie opens up her iPod first. And they're like, oh my gosh, an iPod Touch. Really the reason we gave it to them was purely selfish. Because we knew the only reason we would have access to our phones is if they had something similar to that. So they open it up, and it's an iPod Touch. Hallie or Brooke, I can't remember the order precisely, opens up that same box, sure enough, an iPod Touch. But what was funny is, now I look right at Hudson, and Hudson has a box in his lap, and he begins to put the pieces together of what's going on. Okay, you iPod Touch is for everybody. So he moved the box over and looked around his other Presents that weren't open yet, and looked for the exact same box that Hallie and Brooke had, and so he opened it up, and sure enough, it was an iPod Touch. But what's fascinating to me is Hudson, in the middle of all of these gifts, iPod Touch. Okay, I want, I want an iPod Touch. Oh, you, you got one too. Okay, and so he began to look for the same thing in the middle of gifts that he was already anticipating. And we see from a very early age, or at least I saw in my kids, this struggle with discontentment in their life. Or jealousy in their life. Or envy in their life. And and, and they don't have, like the younger generation doesn't have a monopoly on jealousy or envy, do they? Like the older we get, the more we progress in life, the more things we get jealous of. And what I find uh, very unique is that this time of year, it's like a breeding ground for jealousy, for envy, and for discontentment. I mean, you get together with your family, and you start hearing about all the things that are going on. And you're like, well, if it's not at your house, you start judging your house based on someone else's house. Or like all the families are together and you begin to all of a sudden become real self-conscious about your kid's behavior. And you're like, man, look at that child, like much more behaved than mine. And so, hey, look at Johnny. Look how he's doing. Will you act like Johnny, please? Or we start walking in, we start looking at the dishes. Oh, man, you have much nicer dishes than I do. Or you went on this trip. Oh, I saw this picture. Like, where did you go again? Oh, yeah, I can't go on that trip. Or like maybe it's the technology they have. Oh, I have a 60 inch TV. Oh, well, we just bought a 70 inch TV. Oh my gosh, what kind is it? What's the resolution? How did you get it set up? Oh, you can control your audio in your house from your phone. And we start getting jealous of all of these things. And this discontentment starts rising up in our heart and rising up in our soul this time of year. Like the the time of year that we're supposed to be thankful and the time of year that we're supposed to celebrate the birth of our Savior is most often characterized by deeper levels of depression and envy. The Seattle Times, you know the Northeast, is defined as like the conservative Christian area of our country. Three years ago, three years ago, November 25th, 2016, this article came out, and here was the title of it, Our Struggle to Find Contentment and Optimism. Here are the first two paragraphs. Through the widest lens of history, America since the 1980s looks like the most golden of golden ages. The peace and prosperity of this era is unparalleled compared to the rest of the world, And the history of our species. Like listen to that. He says from the 1980s till now. America is living in the most golden of golden ages. And not just like in our history. But in the entire history of the world. It seems like this area. Or this time in our life. Is the most excessive. The most victorious And here's what he goes on to say Americans became healthier, better fed, longer lived, safer, sent fewer young people off to war, and forged one of humankind's greatest technological revolutions. Second paragraph. But through the narrow lens of our everyday lives, the picture has felt much different and tougher. Social science shows us that Americans, on the whole, have found it harder to garner contentment, connection, and optimism in these prosperous years. And it's felt that way. You know, it's so funny because the lie that we often tell ourselves, the thing that we often think, man, if I just had that, if I just had that thing or that relationship or that house or that spouse or that type of technology, then everything else would work out and be fine. Yet three years ago, the Seattle Times author says, this is the most golden of all golden ages, and we have more than we've ever had before. Yet the level of discontentment and lack of optimism are at its peak right now. And so the lie that we often believe is if I just had a little bit more, then everything else would work. Everything else would go. And so what that tells me is that there is a moment in our history, we are at a time in our culture and in our life where we have to war against envy and discontentment. And we have to find a way to cultivate contentment in our life. But in the evangelical world, we're really good at talking about adultery, premarital sex, drunkenness. All these big sins that we find in our culture. But what I find interesting is that in Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall... We have an account that has been preserved for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years that has to do with discontentment, bitter envy, and jealousy. So if you don't know the story, here's what's going on. In Genesis chapter 1, God created in six days through the very speech that comes out of his mouth, just like we sang, he created the world. The seventh day he rested, and when he looked at his old creation, he said it was good. Then chapter 2, Adam is walking and talking with God. God creates all, or has all the animals come in front of him, and he starts naming all of them. And then God recognizes that he's alone, that Adam's alone, and so he fashions a helper. And Eve comes. So that he can have life together and community together with someone. Then Genesis chapter 3, we find Eve with the serpent, with the enemy, with Satan. And he convinces her to eat from the only tree that God told him not to. So Eve eats, hands the fruit to Adam. Adam eats. And then now there's judgment, there's sin, enters into the equation. And then Genesis chapter 4, we see the first account of what happens when they leave the garden. Here's what it says. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son named Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. You see the body language here. They bring two offerings. Abel, rancher, brings the firstborn or the first calf or the first sheep to the offering. Cain brings some vegetables, something from the field, but not the first. And so when Abel's offering is, finds favor with the Lord and Cain's does not, he becomes angry and his face fell. Like God can tell through the body language what's going on in his heart. So verse six, I love that the Lord just goes right to Cain. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I love the picture here because God is looking right at Cain and says, Cain, listen, why are you angry? And I don't know if Cain says anything back. I don't know if this is a rhetorical question or not. But then God says, listen, if you do well, like if you bring the first fruits, it's going to be accepted. But I'm telling you, right? This is God speaking to Cain. I'm telling you, sin is crouching at your door. And if it goes unchecked, it's going to take over you. He's like warning Cain, hey, there's something wicked going on in your heart here. And if it goes unchecked, if it's a struggle, then it's going to cause you to do something you don't want to do that you never thought you would do. But here it is. It's your choice. Here you go. And listen what happens in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against him and killed him. I mean, this is the brother that, you know, it's Cain and Abel. Maybe they were on the varsity basketball team or the varsity football team. And like, hey, there's Cain and Abel. Man, those guys, they know how to do it. They probably wrestled together. They probably played basketball in the driveway. They probably threw the ball around a little bit. I'm, I'm, not, I didn't do that. But they did a lot of things that a brother would do together. And at some point, Cain's like, hey, Abel, man, what are you doing? Hey, will you come out to the field with me? and in the wickedness of his heart Cain looks at Abel his own flesh and blood someone he grew up against or grew, grew up with and strikes him down and kills him i don't know what it takes to get there to to in your mind decide to kill someone But the sin that God was talking about to Cain was unchecked jealousy and envy that led him to strike that man down, his own brother. But you know what? That's not the only place we see it in Scripture. We see it in Genesis chapter 37 with Joseph and his brothers. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They didn't kill him. They just uh, sold him to some gypsies coming through the area. Sold their brother. Some of you are thinking, is that an option still? Like, I'm okay with that. Not killing him, but I can sell him. It's not King Saul with David. Listen to what happens. And Saul was very angry and, at this because the saying that the people were saying displeased him. Here is the saying. They have ascribed David ten thousands, and to me they ascribed thousands. You see, David and Saul were both warriors, Saul being the king of Israel at the time. And David, when they come back in, there's a big party and they are singing songs like David killed 10,000, Saul killed 10,000. I'm an awful rapper, but that's how I imagine it going. And so they do all this. And now Saul becomes angry because his envy and his jealousy leads him to for the rest of the story to begin to search for David and try to kill him. As David is playing the harp for him, Saul throws a javelin or a spear at him to kill him. All because of unchecked jealousy or envy or a lack of contentment. I could go on and talk about the parable, of the labors in the vineyard, or the prodigal son. But all throughout this book, we see person after person after person struggle with his jealousy. And it's the first thing that's talked about after the fall. Isn't that fascinating? The first thing that is talked about the fall is not... These big evangelical sins, it's this idea that if we keep comparing ourselves to other people, it's going to lead to depression and jealousy and envy. And that, when we leave that unchecked, it's going to lead to so many other things. So the question that we have to ask ourselves now is, is it even possible to contain it? And if so, how can we do it? Is it even possible to contain it? If so, how do we do it? This is where Philippians 4 comes in. This is a picture of Paul. And so Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and look at verse 10. Here's what he says. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. It's Paul is saying, hey, I'm so thankful that you thought about me and that you would consider if I needed anything. Now, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned, underline that word learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any in every Circumstance. I have learned, underline that word learned, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I mean, how about a picture of that? I mean, when I think about the holidays or I think about life in general, that's the story I want to have. I've learned, this is what Paul says, I have learned to be content when I'm low or when I'm high. When I have nothing or when I'm abounding in much, I have learned the secret of facing plenty or hunger. There are abundance and need. Like, I would want that to be a characteristic that people say of me. Man, George, he had some highs and he had some lows, but at the same time, he was content the whole time. But I love the verb that's there. I learned it. I learned the need of it. And then right after this is a verse, if you grew up in church, you know. It's a verse that Tim Tebow put under his eye black before he put John 3.16 in the national championship. Philippians 4.13. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that verse, the context of that major Christian, like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is not, about, is not about anything about competing well in a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game or a volleyball game. The context of that verse is I've learned how to be content in high and low. And I'll tell you what, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like if I can do that, then I can do anything else. And he says he learned that. So so what does it mean to learn that? Like, how do we learn contentedness? Because if so, like, that's a secret that I want to know. Well, this is where Proverbs 23 comes in. So flip over there to Proverbs 23. and And listen to this. The book of Proverbs was written by a man named Solomon. Solomon was David's son. And when Solomon was going to be the king of Israel, after David passes away, the Lord comes to Solomon and says, what do you need? Tell me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, give me wisdom. Not riches, not glory, not favor with the people. Give me wisdom. So a lot of theologians or people that study the word would say that Solomon is one of the wisest men that ever lives. And the book of Proverbs is a collection of his writings to his son. And here's what it says. Proverbs 23, starting in verse 17. It says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely, verse 18, there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. So as Solomon is writing to his son, trying to pass down all this wisdom that he has, he says, listen, do not envy the sinners. Now this particular context with the sinners would say people whose heart is far from God. But we're all sinners, right? You, me, especially my kids. I'm joking, they're great. They're still sinners though. They have wicked, wicked hearts. Just like I have a wicked, wicked heart. Like all of us have wicked, wicked hearts. And so Solomon writes to his son, entreats him, begs him like we see in in Proverbs 1 to heed his ways. And he says, listen, son, Do not envy sinners, but instead fear the Lord. Now this idea of fear is so interesting because there's some contexts of fear that lead us to actually run away from that thing. Haunted houses for me are that type of fear. We pay money to go get scared. That's what we do. But I remember like, 15 or so years ago, I paid money to go to a haunted house and then this little goblin breaks out of jail and starts running after me. And what was my natural instinct? Run away. Thank goodness for that goblin. My first instinct was the punch. That would have been bad. But my first instinct, I'm fearful of that. So I'm running and going in different direction. The other type of fear that there is, is a fear that leads to awe and actually leads to pressing in. The the best way I know how to illustrate this is with is with a tornado. Uh, Several years ago in Dallas, there was a big tornado that came through around Christmas time. We happened to be up there, and so we were driving to a friend's house, and all of our phones were going off. And and I'm just not the guy that's scared of the weather um, because I I still don't know the difference between a watch and a warning. Don't know the difference between those two, even though it's been explained to me multiple times. But I kind of ignore all of those things. And mostly it just annoys me. It's for my good, but, but I just kind of annoyed by it. And so this warning came through and I drove the car like it doesn't really matter. We get to Forney and then the, my friend has a tornado siren right around his house and that starts going off. And I'm like, well, maybe we should elevate my urgency around this now. So I go, no windows into a hallway And we kind of wait out the siren, it's done, and we leave. And on our way home, Lindsay starts seeing on Facebook a bunch of our friends in Rowlett are posting videos about this tornado and what happened. And so she's like, George, this was a big deal. We get home and I start looking at all these videos and I cannot stop watching them. Because I'm like, man, that's a big deal, that's a big deal, that's a big deal. And so I started researching tornadoes, that's how my mind works. And there are five levels of tornadoes, they're, they're rated EF1 through 5. You may know this already, I didn't. But EF1 through 5, and that one was an EF4. Very significant. And a lot of our friends lost homes and lost roofs and, all, and had significant damage. So about a week later, about a week later, my phone goes off. I'm in church, and there's a tornado warning. We had driven home from traveling through the holidays again, and so the kids and Lindsay weren't at church that day because we had gotten back late, and immediately I texted her, and I said, get the kids in a closet right now because the fear and awe of that thing changed my reaction to it. Does that make sense? So, there's one fear that causes us to run away, one fear that leads us to press in. And that fear that God is, that Solomon is talking about here, is he's like, don't envy your friends or the sinners, don't envy those people, but rather make sure your fear of the Lord causes you to press in and bring awe and reverence to Him so that it will change the way you respond to what they have. And that's the sort of awe that we need to have. And what's the, the basis for that all? Surely there is a future for you and your hope will not be cut off. So if we want to cultivate contentedness in our life, the first thing we have to do is we have to have a correct awe of the Lord. The second thing, the second thing we need to do is we need to repent from jealousy. We've got a view jealousy and envy as a sin that god needs to root out of our life and when we feel our heart beginning to be drawn to what other people have we have to repent of those things and this idea of repentance is i'm walking down this way the holy spirit convicts me and i turn around and i go the other the other direction And I repent and go to the Lord and say, God, I have sinned. This is wrong. And go a different way. You see, we've got to reorient this idea of jealousy in our life and see it for what it is. A sin that when goes unchecked will lead us to places we never thought possible. The third thing, if we want to cultivate contentedness in our life, is we need to ask the Lord for Help. I know that seems very churchy, but James 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. God is characterized in the scripture as a good, good father. Good fathers help their kids. My son last night came up to me and said, son, or said Dad, I want a helmet for Christmas. I said, okay, awesome. What kind of helmet? He said, a longhorn helmet. I quickly rebuked him. And then and then I said, let's shift this. What about an a and helmet? He's like, great, but I want to build it. I don't want you to buy it. I'm like, what? Build a helmet? He goes, yeah, I want to buy an old helmet off of eBay. And I want to get the decals for a and and put them on there. Then I look at him and I said, like, so I said, well, Hudson Christmas is coming up. He was a little disappointed. I said, no, bud, Christmas is coming up. Like, read the play here. You're probably going to get that if you want it for Christmas. You know what I didn't say? Well, that's a dumb thing to ask for. You moron. Like, how could we build that? No, my son came to me for help. And in one of my good father moments, I'm not saying I have them all the time, but in one of my good father moments, I said, I would love to do that with you. Just wait till Christmas. That's what God does with us. Yet so often, we are so full of pride and arrogance that thinks we can do this on our own. And I'm convinced that we say, oh yeah, we should ask the Lord for help, but in practice, we don't do it. So if we want to cultivate contentedness in our life and root out envy and jealousy, we've got to ask the Lord for help. The last thing, is we have to surround ourselves with people that we can be honest with. The Christian faith has never been designed to be a solo sport. Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God, like Paul writes to the church in Corinth, when God comforts you, you should go comfort other people. Like what God is doing inside of you is not to end with you, but rather to go with somebody else and to help somebody else. You see, the moments that I want to be a good father or be a great husband are the moments when someone says to me, George, I see what you're doing and you can do better. Anywhere like this book doesn't align with my actions, you can do better. And so I've had to go to people and I said, Hey, Ben, you know me really well. And so anytime you see my actions, my behavior going against what this this book calls me to do, will you call me out? Lindsay, when you see me doing something and responding to you or the kids in a way that does not directly correlate with this book, will you call me out? Will you tell me? Because the truth is, I need people in my life that will tell me when my stuff stinks, I need people in my life that will call call out greatness. And by greatness, I mean a life devoted to the Lord in my life. And when we try to live this life isolated or outside of the context of community, we will find ourselves struggling with sin after sin after sin because God never designed us to live life like that. And so if we want to root out envy and jealousy, we have to put ourselves in a place where we've dropped our guard and have other people in our life that will call out greatness in us. And so I love what Paul says. I've learned, I've learned how to deal with a little and a lot. And I think the way he did it was by having a correct fear of the Lord, a fear that drew us in a repentant heart a humbleness to ask for help and a community that called out greatness in him and i think it's the same thing that we have to have to root that out in our life but i love what what god does with cain he goes right to him uh, this is the way that I think it goes. Uh, this is like the, the way that I think it would happen. And when we buy our kids gifts, especially when they were young and early on, um, they would come down the stairs or they would come into the room that the gift was and they would play with the gift for a little bit. But, but the thing that got the most attention was the box that the toy came in. And I just wanted to say in that moment, guys, I know the box is cool. I know that this is a cool thing. But let me tell you, what's inside the box is even better. Like you may think the box is cool with the power wheels came in, but Hudson, Brook and Halley, let me tell you something. There's an actual car over here that you can push this pedal and you can drive and you can have freedom about as far to the driveway with. But they were so content with the box that they missed the actual toy. But here, now you're thinking, that's a good thing. But sometimes I wonder if that's how God is with us. I've given you the family, but there's a better way to live life. I've given you all of these things yet still rooted in your heart is this discontentment with life. And I think God came to Cain and said, Cain, listen, there's a better way, but sin is crouching at your door. And I think God is telling the same thing to us. Will you not be content with a jealous and bitter heart? But will you look over when you say, there's another and a better way to go through life. And in this holiday season, There is a way to navigate it. There is a perspective to have that will bring more life, more joy, more hope, and more peace. But we have to get out of the box and have to go follow the new way. And the new way is rooting out and cultivating contentment in our life. And my prayer for me and my prayer for us is that we would have that sort of contentment. It would root out sin. And allow us to navigate the holiday season with hope and contentment. Because there's a God who loves us and has a plan for our life. And it's attainable because Paul said he got it. And he's a murderer turned missionary. Pray with me. God, we love you. Just so thankful for your word, thankful for what it teaches us. And God, as we enter in this week with into the time of year that is the most that can oftentimes be the most struggling, the most full of depression, the most times in our life full of angst or comparison, God, I pray that you would give us and show us the better way the same way you did with Cain. God, I pray the result will be very different. I pray that we would be people that war against jealousy and bitter envy and people that follow hard after you. And God, as much as I would like to think that great words or a sermon delivered can have that type of power, the truth is only you and the Holy Spirit can have that type of power in our life. And so God, I pray that you would give us and remind us of the space we need to root out those things. And God, we walk into that moment trusting you can. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Hey, well, thank you for being here. Uh, we hope you have a blessed Thanksgiving and happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day.